The following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. We are initiating a new course on the voice of the silence. An ancient manual of esoteric instruction. This work was translated by the eminent Elena Petrovna Blavatsky, founder of the Theosophical Society, whose scholarly and spiritual achievements cannot be easily estimated. This brief mystical text is a collection of fragments from the Book of the Golden Precepts, an obscure and rich scripture from which the secret doctrine was inspired. The Voice of the Silence was not fully translated since it would have required Blavatsky many years just to organize her documents, let alone translate the work in its totality. She also mentioned that much of the scripture is too sacred and profound to be understood by her students. This is a powerful statement, one that should not be overlooked. This guide, she said, is for serious practitioners who are awakening consciousness. Although the voice of the silence is brief, it is dense and therefore difficult to interpret. As with any deep work, it requires an awakening consciousness to decipher, apply, and realize. Despite the brevity of this work, It synthesizes the entire path to liberation. This is no small feat. The origins and translation of this work has often been contested and disputed. However, the Panchen Lama affirmed its authenticity. In case you do not know, the Panchen Lama is second in command to the Dalai Lama within the Geluk school of Tibetan Buddhism as he stated in 1925. 
It is the only true exposition in English of the heart doctrine of the Mahayana and its noble ideal of self-sacrifice for humanity. This brief work is a condensation of many rich spiritual truths, which not only inform Tibetan Buddhism, but even Judeo-Christian and Western esoteric traditions. This might seem erroneous, especially for those who are very familiar with Blavatsky. She's well known for her expositions on Eastern mysticism, not so much with Western spiritual thought. However, we will demonstrate how both Western and Eastern mystical traditions can provide a deeper understanding of the voice of the silence. We'll do so by juxtaposing and clarifying it with the writings of Samael and Vior. Samael and Vior wrote about Gnosis, the personal, experiential knowledge of divine reality. While this is a Greek term, Gnosis is not the sole property of the Greeks. Different religions have different terms for this type of mystical experience, which are based on the language, culture, and idiosyncrasies of distinct messengers and time periods. Samuel Vayor's particular gift to humanity, given the ambiguity of many spiritual writings, is his clarity. He is direct, profound, insightful. More importantly, he is practical. He gave many keys for understanding the roots of all traditions. The root of all traditions, he emphasizes, is mystical experience. But what is the voice of the silence? This title or principle is a paradox. How can a voice be silent? Who is speaking? To whom? More importantly, what, how, and why? What voice does one hear in the silence? What silence are we referring to? The voice of the silence refers to mystical experiences. In meditation, we can receive direct guidance from divinity. By their very nature, such experiences are paradoxical, especially to our sensual and materialistic mind. How can one possibly experience divinity? How is this even possible given our current limitations or state? How can one perceive without the physical senses? The root word for mysticism is the Greek mayin, to close one's eyes to illusion, so as to perceive inwardly, psychologically, spiritually. These are perceptions we experience even within dreams. Mayin is also the root word for mystikos, an initiate, someone who has learned to develop their full conscious potential. An initiate is someone who perceives and understands realities beyond the body, heart, and mind. These are people who have some level of self-mastery over the causes of suffering and therefore can immediately access knowledge from divinity. This scripture emphasizes that we are yet to awaken to reality, to divinity, to the truth. 
blinded by our passions, appetites, fears, sensuality, desires. We do not see reality. We do not perceive the truth of our situation. We also do not perceive clearly when we dream. As stated in the voice of the silence, before the soul can see, the harmony within must be attained and fleshly eyes be rendered blind to all illusion. This verse is exceptionally compelling. Perception is dual. While gradations and distinct qualities of perception exist, there are really two fundamental modalities of being. We either see divine reality or we don't. We either perceive and comprehend or we do not understand what we perceive. In the worst case, we don't even perceive things at all because we don't pay attention. We are often blinded and confused by our own sense of self. Our identity, which fluctuates, is impermanent. However, by transforming ourselves, we cannot only experience, but unite with divinity through a state of perfection. This is the fundamental argument of this scripture. So what harmony must be attained so as to perceive as a soul? What must we do to unite with our divine being, the truth, the voice that speaks in our inner silence? This harmony is psychological, internal. To use the technical language of meditation, harmony is serenity of mind. Unwavering concentration on one thing without becoming distracted. Tibetan Buddhism teaches that there are nine degrees of serenity or meditative concentration. These lead the disciple to the ultimate apprehension of reality. In the beginning of meditation, we do not perceive spiritual states easily because we are distracted. But with gradual work and concentration, we do. The ability to exclusively focus on one object of meditation implies calmness of mind, silence of thought. Silence is the natural state of the consciousness. What is abnormal is our current state. How we see is usually obscured and filtered, conditioned, whether by pride or anger, negative thoughts, fear, and desire. By observing thought and letting it subside to cease in its activity, we access our true nature of being. This is why the voice of the silence teaches. Silence thy thoughts and fix thy whole attention on thy master, whom thou, whom yet thou dost not see, but whom thou feelest. In the beginning of our studies, we may experience this. We may feel a pressure in our heart. We have a hunch or intuition about a teaching. We do not have all the evidence, but we are inspired to practice, experience, to know. This inner voice in our heart, this voice that speaks in the silence of our mind, the solitude of our practice, is conscience. 
It is knowing right from wrong. Even if we lack an intellectual justification or explanation. This voice is the call of our inner divinity who seeks to inspire us to enter the spiritual path that leads to our true origins. It is this spiritual inquietude in our heart that drives us to approach spirituality and religion, to seek answers to our deepest problems and sufferings. It is also the voice of inner judgment, the voice of inner discrimination. It is intuiting right from wrong behavior. By performing right action, we avoid suffering. We develop inner clarity. This is the prerequisite for awakening consciousness and experiencing the truth. This sense is developed the more we answer its needs, especially through daily meditation. Salman Vior explained the following about this. The human being who allows that which is called self-judgment or inner judgment to express itself in a spontaneous manner within will be guided by the voice of the consciousness. Thus, he will march on the upright path. This is the key. Such an inner voice, inclination, or inspiration is spontaneous. It is not premeditated, planned, conceptualized. It lacks suffering. It is spiritual action free of desire, of attachment, fear, craving, aversion. It is intuition, knowing how to act without having to think. It is like lightning. But while brilliant and astonishing in its novelty, it is oftentimes followed by the rumbling thunder of doubt, thought, negativity, maybe even despair. The clarity of that insight emerges the more we reflect upon ourselves and question our intentions, our impulses, motives, thoughts. We must sift through the mud of passion to find the lotus of virtue. Here's a compelling metaphor. When the lake of the mind is serene, it can reflect heaven upon its tranquil, clear surface. This is known as the faculty of imagination. This is when we perceive psychological images with great detail and depth. When our imagination is muddied, we see through impurity. When our imagination is pure, it reflects the revelations of heaven. Salman Vior also explained this in the revolution of Beelzebub. The intuitive person knows how to listen only to the voice of the silence. Thus, within his serene mind, the eternal truths of life are reflected with splendid beauty. The reasoning person converts his mind into a battlefield filled with prejudices, fears, anxieties, fanaticism, and theories, and his conclusions are always favorable to him. Yet such a turbulent lake can never reflect the sun of truth. The mind of the intuitive one serenely and silently flows, very far away from the black struggle of antithesis and from the storm of exclusivity. 
Reasoning can provide false certainty. Our desires always feel justified. However, genuine mystical experience does not conform to our preferences, our prejudices, fears, anxieties, fanaticism, theories. The beginning of hearing the voice of the silence is abandonment of self. This requires conscious judgment. Intuition or inner judgment can be intentionally strengthened. We do so through following the three levels of, or trainings of any meditative discipline. These three trainings have different names in different traditions. They represent the path through which our consciousness conquers suffering and realizes its divine nature. These three trainings also structure the voice of the silence in its three fragments. Every religion has three levels of knowledge and practice. Introductory, intermediate, and advanced. Buddhism outlines three schools or movements corresponding to these levels. Shravakayana, Mahayana, and Tantrayana, respectively. Shravaka means hearer. Yana means vehicle. It is therefore the vehicle of instruction in which we hear about or learn religion for the first time. This level of knowledge is based in ethical discipline. Here, we learn to not lie, kill, steal, lust, adulterate, consume drugs or intoxicants, envy, gossip, criticize, blame, hurt, or commit harms in any way. This is because negative actions pollute our mind stream. They make us confused, weak, disconnected from our inner divinity. These behaviors distance us from the voice of the divine. They condition our consciousness and cloud our ways of seeing in the world. They even affect our dreams. They put our consciousness to sleep and activate negative ways of being. Such individuals cannot see reality because they're not willing to let go of their desires, whether for sensations, praise, fame, money, drugs, respect, security, status, etc. When practitioners have mastered some level of ethical discipline, cultivating a spiritual space within their bodies, hearts, and minds, they can begin working for the spiritual benefit of others. The more we recognize our sufferings in limitations, and the more we understand how and why people suffer, we become inspired to help them. This is compassion, selfless love, based on the understanding of impermanence. Nothing in existence is eternal including our appetites and desires. We often chase after sensations, experiences, satisfaction, ignoring that our very cravings and aversions control us. However, they are not permanent. They are always changing. When we don't get what we want, we suffer. When we get what we want, we want more. We are never satisfied. 
But when we realize the futility of desire and how it produces pain, then nothing lasts. We also see how our own behaviors make others suffer, which is a great inspiration to change. Tibetan Buddhists use a very specific term for compassion, guided by insight into reality. They call it bodhicitta. This is the awakening heart-mind of boundless compassion. This is a spiritual principle that focuses on liberating others from suffering, precisely because one understands the nature of selflessness. Therefore, we work to not only edify our own spirituality, but that of others. Mahayana is the greater vehicle, since maha means great. This level of religion is where we actively work for the benefit of all beings, regardless of our own desires. This is a superior way. However, it is not the most profound, expeditious, or powerful. The advanced level of religion is known as Tantrayana, the diamond vehicle or supreme way. This is divine sexuality. Tantra literally means continuum, whereby the consciousness conserves, harnesses, and elevates the most potent energies of the body for the spirit, the creative sexual force. Tantra is often represented in Buddhist iconography with various Buddhas, masters, prophets, or gods in a state of sexual embrace. This has nothing to do with lust, but love. Some people get confused. How could one have sex without lust? Lust must gradually be eliminated so that the sexual act becomes a sacrament, a sacred ritual. This is why years of training prepared disciples for this level of knowledge, because sexual power without responsibility produces problems. When a couple conserves and transforms the sexual energy with supreme adoration, purity, and love, never allowing the continuum or flow of forces to leave the body, then they radically awaken the consciousness. This power allows married men and women to develop the deepest insights, since the power to create life, the creative energy, awakens their full potential. The voice of the silence addresses all three levels of religion. It is therefore a complete teaching, despite the fact that Blavatsky didn't transcribe everything from her original source, the Book of the Golden Precepts. But what else must we study to better understand this scripture? We must look to the three essential mystical sciences of antiquity. These are Kabbalah, alchemy, psychology. Kabbalah can mean tradition or knowledge. It also comes from the Hebrew term kabel, which means to receive. This secret wisdom was originally transmitted from mouth to ear, from master to disciple. It more importantly signifies how we as a consciousness receive spiritual experiences. 
Kabbalah is often synonymous with the tree of life, a map of consciousness, the universe, and divinity. The tree of life shares its roots, biblically speaking, with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, otherwise known as alchemy. Alchemy, or Allah-kimia, is an amalgam of Arabic and Greek wisdom, otherwise translated as the chemistry of God. Kimia means to fuse or cast a metal. Allah is the Arabic name for divinity. Traditionally, alchemy is associated with superstition, the belief that dense metals can be transformed like lead into gold. Trans means to carry over. And mutation indicates how an inferior substance becomes a superior one. This is a symbol. By conserving and transforming energy, we become fully developed beings, masters, or gods, with complete knowledge of good and evil. Psychology is understood today as the study of the mind. But etymologically, psychology is the relationship between psyche, the consciousness, and logos, the word, the being, divinity. By mastering our minds in meditation, we connect with and realize the truth. Many will argue that Kabbalah and alchemy have nothing to do with the voice of the silence. Since Kabbalah supposedly originated in 13th century Spain and alchemy in medieval Europe with roots in pre-Islamic Arabian mysticism. These are Western, not esoteric, Eastern esoteric traditions. While we reference Kabbalah and alchemy, we do so in accordance with their principles, not to their appearance or moment in history. Kabbalah, the tree of life, is a map of consciousness. It is a map of our very being. These realities have always existed and will always exist before and after medieval Judaism. Just in the same way that Sir Isaac Newton didn't create, but documented gravity. Likewise, the medieval Jews documented the tree of life and didn't originate it. Likewise, Eastern traditions taught the same truths but in different forms, including Baba Chakra and Kala Chakra. Therefore, the principles of Kabbalah are universal. Also, alchemy, the transformation of personality, the dense light of selfhood into the gold of spirit. This is much older than medieval Europe. This law of transformation predates even our known universe. It is eternal. There have always existed individuals who, once common and ordinary people, worked in this alchemical science to become Buddhas, angels, perfected beings. Likewise, there will always exist beings in future cosmic scenarios who will enter the path of liberation and fully unite themselves with divinity. The same with psychology. Consciousness is inherent to life. Our psyche, our soul, when inspired to study spirituality, seeks a deeper, more personal relationship with divinity, the voice of the silence. 
There are levels to experiencing the voice of the silence. There are also levels of development whereby an individual unites with, realizes, and fully expresses that voice. This is known through the path of initiation. The voice of the silence is based on their universal principles. Therefore, it is useful to explain the essence of Kabbalah, alchemy, and psychology with this scripture, since they complement the text. Eastern symbols can become more clear through context. By looking at the root knowledge of these traditions, we can gain greater confidence into the scripture's meaning. However, to fulfill the requisites of these three sciences, we need absolute dedication and application. We call this the path of initiation. Initiation refers to the beginning of something or the conferral of recognition or membership to a group, such as through ceremonies celebrating coming of age or entering adulthood or even joining a secret society. Initiation is the spiritual process whereby we enter gradually the community of enlightened beings. As with any process of initiation, our candidacy for membership is tested. We receive challenging situations or ordeals. We must prove our ethical caliber. By overcoming ordeals, we develop the spiritual capacity to experience and act through the divine. Through meditation, through the three spiritual sciences, we hear more and more the voice of the silence. This means we experience in meditation and visions more and more the nature of divinity. We also see the way to transform our suffering into wisdom. This is obviously no easy task, which is why the voice of the silence states, Thou canst not travel on the path before thou hast become the path itself. Salman Vera also iterated this fact in one of his most famous sayings. Initiation is life itself, lived intensely, with rectitude and with love. This is not some distant reality. To experience divinity, we must transform our minds. We must transform our states and actions in daily life. Daily life is the theater whereby the drama of initiation is played. We are both the audience and the actor since we both act out and watch our life, our states. We must reflect upon and observe our psychology during great crises so as to catch our most hidden defects, to gather data about them to understand them. We must become conscious agents of our destiny. We decide based on our choices, whether to fulfill selfless, enlightened action, transforming our communities for the better, or behaving with selfishness and desire. We condemn ourselves and others to suffering. If our spirituality is merely theoretical, if it does not impact our state of suffering in lasting and permanent ways, if we are repeating the same circumstances without changing our attitude or state of mind, 
if we are not eradicating suffering at its roots within our psyche, if we are not performing genuine service to our fellow human beings, it means we are not working effectively. This is why Jesus and Nazareth taught, by their fruits, you will know them. But why enter initiation? Why intentionally take on a work that will initially provide tests, ordeals, challenges, and sufferings? Many people enter our tradition and begin practicing it. However, they soon realize that their life is falling apart. Difficulties emerge in their personal, economic, professional, marital, or family life. Seemingly without explanation, things get so hard that many give up, saying, this teaching is hurting me. However, they don't realize that they are getting exactly what they asked for. They are entering a probationary period whereby they must prove themselves to the work. Genuine spiritual practice catalyzes latent karma. Karma is often associated with a blind law of retribution, with suffering bad consequences for wrong action, or what goes around comes around. In truth, karma is not a blind law. It is intelligently managed by divinity. We will explain how and why. Karma comes from the Sanskrit karman, signifying cause and effect. We will always follow the trajectory of our own actions and behaviors. We always receive the consequences of our former actions, including before our birth and after our death. What must happen will happen. But the question becomes, when, how, and why? Certain karma or results of former deeds are latent. They only activate when the time is ripe, such as when a wave rises in an ocean to finally crash upon the surface. Such an influence emerges from the depths. The same with karma. What happens is that we are asleep. We don't see the source of these influences. Neither do we realize that such karma would happen regardless of whether we enter this work or not. To not work on ourselves is to magnify disaster. For if we are not striving to unite with divinity, if we do not help ourselves, if we do not act properly, then no one can help us. Divinity, out of compassion, seeing our sincerity, gives us challenges to bring us closer to Him. Also, when we suffer, we are more inclined to seek God. When at ease, we become complacent and lazy. We also get doses rather than the whole payment all at once, despite what some people might believe. This intelligent manager of affairs ensures that we do not receive more than we can handle. It's the same karma, but it is parsed in relation to the totality of what we owe. Initiation, therefore, is the path of paying all our karma, all our debts, with intelligence, wisdom, and good deeds. 
All this is managed by divinity because if we had to pay karma unwillingly, unconsciously, we will only exacerbate the situation, acting out of retaliation and spite, blaming others, blaming God for our situation. This obviously does not improve things. It makes it worse. However, at times karma becomes more intense. Because ordeals help us to burn away psychological impurities, to pay grievous debts from our past. By transforming ourselves in difficult situations, circumstances, we pay what we owe. Oftentimes, these karmic situations become intense because we need to learn valuable lessons as a consciousness. They also help us purify our mind stream by dying to our defects. We become free. This is why the voice of the silence teaches. Strive with thy thoughts unclean before they overpower thee. Use them as they will thee. For if thou sparest them and they take root and grow, know well, these thoughts will overpower and kill thee. Beware, disciple, suffer not in, though it be their shadow, to approach. For it will grow, increase in size and power. And then this thing of darkness will absorb thy being before thou hast well realized the black foul monster's presence. The scripture also states, Kill thy desires, Lanu. Make thy vices impotent ere the first step is taken on the solemn journey. Strangle thy sins and make them dumb forever before thou dost lift one foot to mount the ladder of being the tree of life. Some have also pointed out an apparent contradiction or paradox. How is this path to liberation from suffering, and yet we must necessarily suffer? How is it that Samuel Vior stated that pain is satanic, and yet we need to face karma and pain in order to grow? Let us be very clear. Voluntary suffering is distinct from mechanical suffering. It is a difference in attitude. The first is by choice. When you choose to work on yourself, you diminish your pain through insight and will. By consciously taking on ordeals, we gain joy and happiness because we know this is the way to pay our debts and do good deeds. It sounds strange, right? Why be happy when things go south? In reality, by perceiving our defects during the worst times, we can eliminate them. This recognition brings true joy. It's a strange dynamic to observe in oneself. The second, mechanical suffering, is unintentional. We experience hardship and we react making things worse. By initiating this work and willingly taking on the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, comprehending it, and eliminating its roots in us, we in turn end strife. It is true that the self, the ego, our defects, suffer when unsatisfied. However, the soul, that which connects us with divinity, knows how to experience peace even in great turmoil. 
What matters is our psychological center of gravity. Are we situated in the consciousness or the ego? In the soul or desire? Wherever we direct our attention, we spend creative energy. When we face conflict, do we give in to our reactions or do we respond with intelligence? There is a major difference between these two modes of being. Following the voice of the silence in such crises will get us through them. Ignoring what we must do in the moment guarantees our failure. The path involves pain because we have defects that produce it. However, the true nature of the consciousness is serenity, understanding, and bliss. These strengthen the more we follow the voice of the silence, our intuition, our innermost God. Therefore, examine your mind. The more we strive and intuit the voice of the divinity in our heart, the more we align ourselves with our conscience within the silence of our being, the more proper our conduct, the better the results will be in our life. As we learn to eliminate defects, we awaken consciousness. We experience and come to inhabit the superior dimensions of the tree of life. This diagram has 10 spheres, known as sephiroth or emanations of the divine. From the most abstract and spiritual above to the most dense and material below. The voice of the silence speaks of seven important steps for developing spiritually. These lower seven spheres, along with the sacred word, the trinity of, or three spheres above, constitute the ten sephiroth of the Kabbalah. These spheres are not only dimensions or places within nature, but also qualities and levels of being, and even vehicles that we inhabit in order to operate within those regions, whether physically or in dreams. We access these higher regions when we sleep. If we are removing defects, conserving energy, and creating vehicles that help us operate in the superior regions of nature. Blavatsky wrote extensively about the Kama Rupa, or body of desires, the famous astral body of Hod. We also have an inferior manas, or mental body which we use to subsist within the world of Netzach, the mental world. What many don't realize is that these two vehicles do not belong to divinity, but mechanical nature. They are lunar because they are given to us by nature and must return to nature, willingly or unwillingly. They relate to the moon in that the moon is mechanical, cyclical. It repeats. It does not have any autonomy or will of its own. It obeys nature's laws. The problem is that our consciousness, trapped in defects and desires, is asleep. It also inhabits the Kama Rupa and inferior Manas. When those lunar bodies must eventually be disintegrated within lower spheres, within inferior dimensions, within the hell realms, because it belongs there to inferior nature. Our consciousness will also go through that process 
or purification within lunar nature, within the inferior worlds, because the consciousness is trapped. Until our defects, that trapped consciousness, are eliminated, then we will never be free. The problem is that this mechanical process is very painful, involving involuntary or mechanical suffering that does not produce enlightenment. The other way is to enter initiation. Destroy desire. Free the consciousness. Create superior vehicles. We call them legitimate solar astral and solar mental bodies, along with superior manas, the solar causal body of nirvana. These are solar bodies because they belong to the matter and energy of divinity represented by the solar light. The power of life and generation is sexual. It is solar. It is creative and life-sustaining. We create these bodies through Tantra, through the sexual union of husband and wife, within the perfect matrimony, as explained by Samal and Vior. Marriage is where we can harness the power of the sun, the solar logos, the divine. Nature is dual. It is lunar below, mechanical, impure, but heavenly, solar, pure, conscious, above. We gravitate to places in nature in accordance with our level of being. The Voice of the Silence teaches, Help nature and work on with her, and nature will regard thee as one of her creators and make obeisance. And she will open wide before thee the portals of her secret chambers, Lay bare before thy gaze the treasures hidden in the very depths of her pure virgin bosom. Unsullied by the hand of matter, she shows her treasures only to the eye of spirit, the eye which never closes, the eye for which there is no veil in all her kingdoms. Then will she show thee the means and way, the first gate and the second, the third up to the very seventh. And then the goal beyond which lie, bathed in the sunlight of the spirit, glories untold, unseen by any save the eye of soul. We create superior vehicles through harnessing the sexual energy for the spirit. This is the true meaning of being born again. Only married couples, husband and wife, join through conscious love and affinity in multiple levels of being can use the creative sexual energy and give birth to superior bodies. This occurs when the sexual fire known as the Kundalini rises up the spinal medulla of each of the seven lower bodies of the tree of life. These bodies allow us to become conscious citizens and inhabitants of those regions. They also allow us to approach and even incarnate divinity. The Kundalini is symbolized in the Torah, specifically Numbers, whereby Moses erected a brass serpent upon a pole. Whenever anyone gazed upon it, they were healed of their fiery afflictions, the biting serpents of passion. Remember that the Israelites disobeyed divinity and were punished by fiery serpents. The Israelites are the parts of our consciousness who seek divinity. By going against our conscience, we become afflicted by passion. 
as Moses wrote in the book of Numbers. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. What is brass? It is an alchemical symbol. It is an amalgamation of copper and tin. Copper relates to Venus, woman, and tin represents Jupiter, man. Through pure Tantra, the couple heals and elevates their souls, raising the fire and intelligence of the Divine Mother Kundalini, whose intelligent power only rises in accordance with the merits of the heart. When the Kundalini rises throughout the spine to the mind and reaches the heart, we acquire an initiation of major mysteries. These initiations are steps for approaching the voice of the silence, our being. These are five major mysteries, or there are five major mysteries, or initiations of fire, relating to each of the lower bodies or sephiroth below. The first initiation relates to Malkut, the physical body. The second initiation relates to Yasod, the vital body. The third initiation relates with Hod, the astral body. The fourth initiation relates with Netzach, the mental body. The fifth initiation relates with Tifereth, the causal body. The divine soul, Geburah, and the innermost being, Chesed, never fall into temptation and therefore have the creative fire already present in them. However, what few realize is that raising the first five kundalini serpents within the lower spheres of the tree of life are just the beginning. Beyond the serpents of fire are the serpents of light. This is the Son of Man, our particular, individual, intimate Christ, the Logos. The word, the voice of the silence. Christ is not a person, but a cosmic energy, universal, impersonal, a divine intelligence that can incarnate within any properly prepared initiate who has solar bodies. Without those bodies and without sacrifice, without a Mahayana attitude of bodhicitta. The voice of the silence, the sacred word, our true being, the cosmic Christ, cannot enter. Since solar bodies are the conduit through which this terrifyingly divine energy can express. Likewise, one needs true love for humanity and sacrifice for others to necessitate his incarnation. When a disciple achieves the fifth initiation of major mysteries, he raised the kundalini within the physical, vital, astral, mental, and causal bodies. He or she has a choice to make. To stay in, nirv in heaven, nirvana, and forget about the sufferings of humanity. Or to renounce happiness and return to Malkut, the physical world, to serve others selflessly till the end. Those who renounce nirvana to serve humanity and who have developed the Mahayana essence of bodhicitta 
who embody selfless love and compassion for mortals, can enter what is known as the straight path, the path of renunciation, and therefore incarnate Christ. Upon incarnating Christ, the initiate becomes a bodhisattva. Bodhi is wisdom, and sattva is essence. Wisdom in Kabbalah is chokmah. The second logos of Kabbalah, our intimate Christ. Therefore, a bodhisattva is the essence of Christ, a master in the beginning of development. Only Christ can help the bodhisattva fully eliminate the ego and pay all their karma, even in one life. One continues by now raising the serpents of light, by raising Christ, the Son of Man, the solar light, within the spine of the lower sephiroth of the tree of life. These Venusic initiations relating to Venus, conscious love, Christ, are symbolized by the different episodes in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, who exemplified the entire path to reaching and perfecting the voice of the silence in oneself. As stated in the book of John, chapter 3, verses 14 to 50, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life is the intimate self-realization of the being, the full perfection of our internal master within our psyche, the union of the soul with the verb, Christ, divinity, the voice of the silence through the path of initiation. The voice of the silence is a remarkable scripture that emphasizes the essential tenets of Buddhism and Christianity. The following verses emphasize the reality and application of the Four Noble Truths, which elaborate upon and demonstrate the esoteric truths we have expounded. Hast thou not passed through knowledge of all misery, truth the first, Ku? Hast thou not mastered Mara's king at sea, the portal of assembling, truth the second, Two, hast thou not sin at the third gate destroyed and truth the third attained? Mu, hast not thou entered Tao, the path that leads to knowledge, the fourth truth? And now rest neath the Bodhi tree, which is perfection of all knowledge. For know thou art the master of Samadhi, the state of faultless vision. We begin to hear the voice of the silence. To receive hunches, insights, inner judgments through recognizing our state of suffering. We also gain more clarity in ourselves when we recognize how our desires manifest in relation to diverse circumstances, assembling or manifesting within the screen of our inner awareness. By observing ourselves, we begin to gather data about our defects. Meditation is the third truth whereby we go deep in concentration, reflecting upon our errors, vices, defects, desires, egos, so that by comprehending them, we can eliminate them. This is the path of initiation, the path of, da, of Tao, the Tao cross, the Hebrew Tav, or the Tao, wisdom beyond dualistic notions and concepts. 
Bodhi is Sanskrit for wisdom. This is Christ, the being, the true life of any initiate. We meditate and receive wisdom from the Bodhi tree, the tree of life in us, the totality of our consciousness, which must be perfected and integrated. The Bodhi tree can also represent the tree of knowledge of good and evil, alchemy, since they're transforming the sexual energy and giving it to divinity. We gain wisdom about the nature of positive and negative, solar and lunar, man and woman. This energy awakens us to samadhi, mystical experiences free of ego, perfect, lucid revelations from the divine. We will conclude with a chapter from Friedrich Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra. This excerpt synthesizes everything we share today. Nietzsche at one point knew the path of initiation. Here he relates through his fictional depiction of the Iranian prophet Zarathustra, how one enters meditation to communicate with the voice of the silence. One must enter a drowsy state to access the internal worlds, to meditate in the threshold between waking and dreaming. Also, he relates the difficulties and burdens that such a voice necessarily demands of us in the spiritual work. To give birth to the voice, to the word, to Christ, the superman or superhuman, we must die to our impurities radically. Zarathustra refers to the voice of the silence as his angry mistress, his divine mother, who reprimands him for his hesitation and faltering in the path. This voice of conscience is oftentimes severe and demanding us our best. Here's what Nietzsche wrote. What happened to me, my friends? You see me distracted, driven away, unwillingly obedient, prepared to go. Alas, to go away from you. Indeed, Zarathustra must return once more to his solitude. But this time the bear goes back to his cave without joy. What happened to me? Who ordered this? Alas, my angry mistress wants it. She spoke to me. Have I ever yet mentioned her name to you? Yesterday, toward evening, there spoke to me in my stillest hour. That is the name of my awesome mistress. And thus it happened. For I must tell you everything, lest your hearts harden against me for departing suddenly. Do you know the fright of him who falls asleep? He is frightened down to his very toes, because the ground gives under him, and the dream begins. This I say to you as a parable. Yesterday, in the stillest hour, the ground gave under me. The dream began. The hand moved. The clock of my life drew a breath. Never had I heard such stillness around me. My heart took fright. Then it spoke to me without voice. You know it, Zarathustra. 
And I cried with fright at this whispering, and the blood left my face, but I remained silent. Then it spoke to me again without voice. You know it, Zarathustra, but you do not say it. And at last I answered defiantly, yes, I know it, but I do not want to say it. Then it spoke to me again without voice. You do not want to, Zarathustra? Is this really true? Do not hide in your defiance. And I cried and trembled like a child and spoke. Alas, I would like to, but how can I? Let me off from this. It is beyond my strength. Then it spoke to me again without voice. What do you matter, Zarathustra? Speak your word and break. And I answered, Alas, is it my word? Who am I? I await the worthier one. I am not worthy even of being broken by it. Then it spoke to me again without voice. What do you matter? You are not yet humble enough for me. Humility has the toughest hide. And I answered, What is the hide of my humility not born? I dwell at the foot of my height. How high are my peaks? No one has told me yet, but my valleys I know well. And it spoke to me again without voice. O Zarathustra, he who has to move mountains also moves valleys and hollows. And I answered, As yet my words have not moved mountains, and what I said did not reach men. Indeed, I have gone to men, but as yet I have not arrived. And it spoke to me again without voice. What do you know of that? The dew falls on the grass when the night is most silent. And I answered, they mocked me when I found and went my own way, and in truth my feet were trembling then. And thus they spoke to me, you have forgotten the way, now you have also forgotten how to walk. And it spoke to me again without voice. What matters their mockery? You are one who has forgotten how to obey. Now you shall command. Do you not know who is most needed by all? He that commands great things. To do great things is difficult, but to command great things is more difficult. This is what is most unforgivable in you. You have the power, and you do not want to rule. And I answered, I lack the lion's voice for commanding. And it spoke to me again as a whisper. It is the stillest words that bring on the storm. Thoughts that come on doves' feet guide the world. O Zarathustra, you shall go as a shadow of that which must come. Thus you will command, and commanding, lead the way. And I answered, I am ashamed. Then it spoke to me again without voice. You must yet become as a child and without shame. The pride of youth is still upon you. You have become young late. But whoever would become as a child must overcome his youth too. And I reflected for a long time and trembled. But alas, I said what I had said at first. I do not want to. Then laughter surrounded me. Alas, how this laughter tore my entrails and slid open my heart. And it spoke to me for the last time. O Zarathustra, your fruit is ripe, but you are not ripe for your fruit. 
Thus you must return to your solitude again, for you must yet become mellow. Again it laughed and fled. Then it became still around me as with a double stillness. But I lay on the ground and sweat poured from my limbs. Now you have heard all, and why I must return to my solitude. Nothing have I kept from you, my friends. But this too you have heard from me, who is still the most taciturn of all men, and wants to be. Alas, my friends, I still cannot, could tell you something. I still could give you something. Why do I not give it? Am I stingy? But when Zarathustra had spoken these words, he was overcome by the force of his pain and the nearness of his parting from his friends. And he wept loudly, and no one knew how to comfort him. At night, however, he went away alone and left his friends. If you have any questions, feel free to ask. Sure, I've got a question um, too. But the first, um, this path of initiation, uh, clearly at some point, and you emphasize the path of initiation into the major mysteries. Um, and then you briefly talked about initiation into the Christic mysteries, the, the path of the light. Um, and then also going back to the minor mysteries for those of us who are single. Can you, I guess, just go into a little bit more detail about how those three paths relate to each other? Great. We have the three mountains poster. The first mountain is initiation. In the beginning of the path, as we're single or even if we're married, we have to enter probation. We have the minor mysteries, nine in total. Single people take much longer than married couples in the nine minor mysteries. A minor mystery has to do with facing yourself in the path, beginning. We learn for the first time that we are filled with ego. We realize that we are fallen, demonic. And so we may have experiences in the astral plane where you're being told, descend into the earth. You may have the vision or a master may say, go down. Symbolized in the first arcana of the tarot. Magician pointing his finger up with his right hand and pointing down to the earth with his left. Meaning if you want to go up, you have to go down first. Face yourself. It's probation because the divine lodges are looking to see whether we are going to be serious. You know? The way that we get serious is that we look at our defects and be accountable. As we're discovering ourselves and eliminating defects, we may finally find a partner. Uh, some people do find this path when they're already married and they can begin where they're at. And with more fire, the quicker you go. So the minor mysteries can be accelerated. But obviously with the forge of Hephaestus, which is the god of fire and smithery in the Greek mythology or Vulcan and Roman teachings, we take the fire of a matrimony and go up the Mount of Initiation. So what happens is that you enter the major mysteries. We say that there are five that are more important for us. When you raise the Kundalini up the physical body, you receive the first initiation of major mysteries. When you raise the fire up Yasod, the vital body, the second initiation. Likewise with Hod, the astral body, the third initiation of major mysteries. 
Netzach, the fourth, relating to the mental body, fourth initiation. And then finally, the fifth initiation of major mysteries in Tifereth, the causal body, superior manas. And at that point, really because in the higher spheres, the fire is always present within Gibra and Hesed, which never fall, the spirit and divine soul. Atman Budi, you have a decision to make. When, At- when Manas is united with Atman Budi at this initiation, the soul has a choice. Do you decide to fully eliminate the ego and incarnate Christ, pay it all your debts in one life, or take a slower path, which is the path of the the spiral way, which, you know, you see in this poster, you see people going into the left or entering a spiral development, which is allegorizing the voice of the silence, especially, I believe, in the third fragment that Blavatsky wrote between the paths of liberation and renunciation. So in the spiral path, you have really like a vacation. You get to enjoy nirvana. You're in that level of nature. You're with the gods. Everything is easy. You drink ambrosia all day. You're happy. And many of the nirvanis, you call them nirvani buddhas, they slowly enter development over many cosmic days, mahamanvantaras, up a path that leads eventually to the source, but very little hardship. They may incarnate physically, periodically, here and there. But, you know, there are a number of them who stay true to that path. And they're happy. It's a good work. But the straight path is different. It means you return to the physical world, you renounce your powers, you renounce happiness, you pay everything that you owe, and you suffer the maximum. But as a grace, you receive Christ. You receive the verb, the voice of the silence. That's when Christ is born in the manger. Right? Because... In Malkut, we have many animals surrounding us in our mind. And Christ is born as a baby and has to grow up. And at that point, in the process of Christ growing and developing in us, you have to raise what are known as the serpents of light. That's represented by the path of Jesus. And as you see from the gospel, that's a very tumultuous way. And that's part of the first mountain still, because if you decide, if you've reached the fifth initiation of Major Mysteries, you descend down back to the physical world, you abandon nirvana, you enter the path of renunciation. You return to serve humanity. Then you can receive Christ, the verb, the logos. And then you have to raise the serpents of light up these bodies. But again, that's just the first mountain. So as elevated as it might be, you know, after you've raised the serpents of light, they call them the Venustic initiations. You enter the second mountain. Now, Venus, the Venustic initiation, is when Christ incarnates in the soul. It's related to Venus because it's the path of love. And the second mountain really is total death of the ego. Kill even the shadow of desire, as Blavatsky taught. Fully eliminate the tree of Zakum, the tree of death. You descend down into your hell realms, 
nine of them in total. And after annihilating all the egos related to the inverted first sphere, the moon, you go up one initiation. You enter the higher worlds. Likewise, you annihilate the egos relating to the mercurial hells. You go up one heaven. Likewise, you, you descend into all these lower spheres relating to the moon, Mercury, Venus, the sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. And you ascend up those heavens after you fully clean out your own inner hell realms. And then at the very height, what happens is that you pay all your karma. Usually at the, in the form of a sickness, a disease. And the physical body will die. And then the soul has to resurrect. There are some masters like Jesus, they, they resurrected with their physical body. But others choose, like Salman Vior did or Joan of Arc, resurrect with the body of liberation, Yasod, the perfected vital body. So that's a very extreme path. Very difficult. Very powerful. But it's the one that leads to really the absolute, the source of all things. Because to get to there, you have to pay all your karma, have no ego. And then at that point, you're on the third mountain, which is even more daring because those are levels of perfection that relate to the top trinity of the tree of life, which are very incomprehensible for us. But that level is a path, path relating to masters who are resurrected. So even they have to work. Long path. I know we say it's short, but in a sense, it feels long because, you know, we face suffering. It could be intense. So Nirvani is, a, you know, in the spiral path. They see how much the masters of the straight path suffer. We call them bodhisattvas. They incarnate bodhi, the light of wisdom, the essence of wisdom, or Christ. Wisdom in Hebrew is chokmah, the second sphere in the tree of life. And the Nirvanis say, don't take this difficult path. It's very challenging. You will suffer. And so they tempt, the gods tempt the bodhisattvas. You know, and it's, um, you know, a decision that we can't really, we shouldn't make on our own. Really, it's something that your inner being will decide. You know, the being says, I want this, then you do it. But, you know, ambition is one thing. Like, I want to be more spiritual or, you know, go to these higher levels. But really the one who decides that is your inner, your innermost. But, and your being can show you in meditation or experiences what he wants. So, but yeah, that is a very concise, hopefully concise explanation of Three Mountains. You want to know more about the path in its totality? You can study the Three Mountains by Samal and Vior. And when we study the Voice of the Silence, we're going to break that down in more detail. Yeah, uh, second question. You mentioned briefly that the Bodhi tree, if I, if I caught it, was related to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Is that correct? Can be. Uh, I mean, usually the tree of wisdom, we say, is the tree of life. But it's ambiguous because where do you get wisdom from if but the sexual energy? When you raise the energy up your spine, you know, the tree is the tree, like a Christmas tree. But when you put the lights on it, you have wisdom, chokmah, Christ manifest. 
So the Bodhi tree is our tree of life that's illuminated by the tree of knowledge. So they share the same roots. I mean, you could say it's the tree of knowledge too, but um, I mean, there's a duality of interpretation, really. I mean, the thing about Kabbalah, even with Eastern mysticism, which may not be distinctly Jewish, but symbolic, that language is abstract and you can be fluidic with your interpretation because there's a lot of dynamic potential in a symbol, whether it's Eastern or Western. So there's a levels of levels of meaning. Sure. Um, what you said about the gods tempting the bodhisattvas, can you explain more about that? Is it because it seems kind of mischievous, but it's gods and bodhisattvas they're, they're both good factors, factors of good. So. Right. Um, the Nirvanis, you know, they've eliminated some level of defects. They have a level of purity, which is very sacred, but they're not perfect. I mean, they have one foot in heaven, but they still have much of their consciousness that is trapped in ego in hell. So while part of them is enjoying the bliss of Nirvana, they also don't have their full consciousness developed. And it's interesting. I mean, Salon Vior mentioned that really the temptations of the Nirvanis are worse than demons because they offer you solace and comfort with good things. Stay with us. You won't be hurt. You'll be happy here. You're peaceful. Forget about the world. Forget about humanity. And this is the opening lesson from Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra where Zarathustra goes to the mountain cave to meditate for 10 years, symbol of how he worked in Malkut, or the fictional prophet portrayed by Nietzsche, Zarathustra, meditating in his cave. He said, Behold you great star, Ein Sof. This is the origin we wish to return to. For what would your happiness be had you not those for whom you shine? For 10 years, you climbed to my cave. 10 years, Malkut, the 10th sphere. You would have tired of your light and of your journey had it not been for my eagle and my serpent. The Kundalini. Kukulkan, amongst the Mayans. The feathered serpent, Quetzalcoatl. The fires of the Holy Ghost rising up the spine as the wings of the spirit. And in the opening of that book, he decides, I must descend from my mountain to go down to the valleys and to teach the people who are there lost. Because he's a bodhisattva. But when he goes there, as he's leaving his cave and he goes down the mountain, he encounters a hermit. A hermit, said, a hermit that's in solitude. He says, why do you go to the people, Zarathustra? They will laugh at you and mock you and shame you. They will spit in your face and condemn you. Why do you not stay in nature among the birds and the flowers and the trees? Here the bears and the animals will be your companions. And Zarathustra says something like, what, do you, what is a hermit doing out here in the wilderness? And the hermit says, I hum, I sing, I do mantras, prayers in the wilderness, and I'm happy here. And Zarathustra says, well, let me, let me uh, 
leave from you now so that I don't take something from you. And the two old men are laughing. They laugh at each other jovially. And Zarathustra goes on his way. And then the famous line that Nietzsche really got in trouble for was, doesn't this hermit know that God is dead? And really, God is dead in us if we don't descend, kill all the ego, take the energies out of hell, and return it as the superman, the superhuman. You know? But the hermit tempts him, says, you know, you'll be happy here. And in some ways, someone else says that's worse than demons. Because demons are, you know, they attack you or they are suffering a lot. And it's very easy to say no, because it's obvious. But when you're with the gods or the level of nature among the heavens, it's like, you be, if you have an experience in nirvana, you say it's very beautiful. You don't want to leave. You see the in the causal plane, the trees and the waters moving and rippling with cause and effect like a perfect symphony and the masters of nirvana with their robes of heaven welcoming you and they treat you with a lot of love but the bodhisattvas have to renounce that because there's higher levels beyond good and evil even to use the title of one of nietzsche's books so it's really interesting i mean what's worse a temptation that's like you know like a Someone who is a drug addict or is saying, come take drugs with us. It's like, well, it's obvious, but what about those who tempt you who are kind? Join us, stay with us. But that'll open up to us if we, first of all, reach that point. I mean, it's a decision we don't make now. You have to become a master of major mysteries. Incarnate your soul. How many people accomplish all, all three of these mountains in one lifetime? I mean, realistically, are we going to do it in one life? Probably not. I mean, few people do it. Well, how many lifetimes would it take an average person? Depends on their will and karma, the, what the being manages. You know, you look at someone like Padmasambhava, one life. Joan of Arc, Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Milarep or um, Salman Vior. But you look at their life that they lived, how intense it was. It's really, you know, all that suffering from multiple lifetimes they accumulated are now condensed in the span of like 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Very intense. Are we willing to take it? I mean, the being, if our being says, this is what I want for you, so be it. It's not something we wish upon ourselves. Nobody likes the straight path. When you say being, who are you referring to? Yeah, so the being has many levels. We obviously talked about the first lower five spheres related to the soul. But above that we have Gibra, the divine consciousness, or known as Buddhi in Sanskrit. And then we have Atman, Chesed in Hebrew, the spirit. Atman Buddhi is our inner God. The spirit Chesed which is the light mentioned in the light surah of the Quran. And Allah is a light within a lamp. Chesed, the spirit. And the lamp is Giburah, from which the light of Nur, Aur in Hebrew, or Nur in Arabic, the top trinity, the, the light of 
Christ. He's Gnostic terms. So we have Atman Buddhi, which is the spirit and divine soul. Never falls. That's really the spirit and the intuitive consciousness. But above that, we have even more refined levels. Ketera Chukma Abina, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Or really, uh, the supremacy, the wisdom, and the intelligence of God. Which are really just one light. You know, they're a unity, but they're not people. Which is why, in the especially the Muslim tradition, um, Prophet Muhammad, and they denounced the degeneration of the Trinity because many Christians had devolved their faith, thinking these are three people. But it's really one light, just different expressions. So when you say Eheye means to be, in which sphere does that, is that the being, Eheye? Yes. In which sphere does that term relate to? Keter. Keter, the highest. So Eheye Asher Eheye, I am that I am, who is really the father of the supreme light emerging from the absolute in the tree of life, really to the top managing and governing the rest. So there are different names in Hebrew and also in Arabic as well that relate to the tree of life. But really the ten spheres themselves are referenced in the Bible, the Old Testament, with sacred names of divinity. In Keteriyev, Eheyeh Asher Eheyeh, I am that I am. Um, you have Yod Chava within Chokmah, Yod Chava Elohim in Binah, El in Hesed, Elohim Gibur in Geburah, Eloah Vaadat Yotei Vauhei in Tiferet, Yot Chava Sabaoth in Netzach. You might even have, uh, I believe it's uh, Elohim in Hod, Shaddai El Chai in Yesod, and then Adonai Haaretz in Malkut. That's one way of looking at things, but it's very deep. And obviously the different traditions map out the names of divinity in different ways along with the tree of life. But the being really is these top five spheres. These parts of this consciousness never fall. They're perfect. But they gain wisdom and understanding of their true nature as we are working and cooperating. So you're saying when we reach the highest sphere, um, not me, but when someone reaches that sphere, so it's no way of falling from that sphere, going down. The soul can fall, but the being never does. So if it's a being, so when we reach that level, we become a being. One is a being. Well, that level already exists in us. All these levels are already there. So when we say that the sphere of Keter never falls, what we mean is that level of divinity that's already present in us cannot fall. So the person who's doing the work to try to redeem itself or ourself, right, is Tiferet, the sphere that has fallen. So would you say that Tiferet reaches Keter or that Tiferet just comes to know that aspect of Keter that's already yeah. present within us? But Tiferet can still fall again. We've seen masters like Jesus of Aramento that have fallen multiple times even after completing the whole work. They fall and they have to do it all over again. As Ibn Arabi said, the soul is a mirror. The soul, if it's perfected and polished, will reflect the light. The light never falls. It is eternal. But whether or not we reflect that truth is another thing. So we can enter the absolute 
and no, really, the Ain Sof. We return to that star of heaven. But so long as we have our foot in the door of the universe, within creation, we can fall. And that's a very delicate thing to think about, you know. But masters at that level don't fall because of lust. They're beyond, way beyond that, even beyond love. And so if they, like Zanoni in the book of his name, by Edward Bulwer-Lytton, he was a master in France, or he was a Chaldean master of with a resurrected body, was really in... Um, Zanoni, yeah. He was a resurrected master living in France right before the French Revolution. He fell in love with an actress from Naples. And he fell with full knowledge that, you know, he was forbidden to do that. So he fell because he loved this woman. You know, and Salman Vera fell in Lemuria because he fell in love too. They said it was forbidden for him because, you know, you reach those heights, sex is already conquered. You don't need to use it anymore. You're way beyond that. And so to go down to really to abandon our first love, the Divine Mother, it's like the Divine Mother says you can't do that unless the Father commands you to descend. That's another thing. But many masters fall because they fell in love and then in the act they couldn't control the energy. And what happened with Zanoni was that as punishment, he was decapitated in the French Revolution because he had more responsibility. You know, you're, you're a god. You're immortal. You have a job to do. You know, and then the law says, okay, which is why you find it symbolized in the Hector Berlioz's uh, Symphony Fantastique. I think in the fourth movement, you hear the, the French Revolution and the drum roll as the guillotine is decapitating the aristocrats. And there's one part at the end where very end of the symphony or very end of that fourth movement where you hear like a flute playing and almost of a pleading, begging nature where Zanoni is, Berlioz was teaching, Zanoni was praying, please forgive me. Then, and then the drum roll as he's decapitated. Because that's a level of responsibility, right? It's like you're the god of a planet, a cosmos, a galaxy, whatever it is. And you fall if you fall it's serious more consequences for that level of knowledge that is why in the ecclesiastes says for in much knowledge is much grief he who increases knowledge increases sorrow especially for those masters who were perfected and then they abandon it for them to rise again is very difficult they have to pay a lot To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. 
May all beings be in peace.